Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates and paint and troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get uh, one of the most annoying things in, in the various discussions about content moderation are how, uh, I guess, uncreative most people are in exploring these issues. Uh, for example, they, they always seem to think that the way the internet companies exist today must be how they will exist tomorrow and forever in the future. Uh, but, you know, one of the other areas where there's a lot of uh, you know, lack of creativity among people thinking about these things, not so much the people working in the space, is that they seem to think that there are only two possible ways to deal with content that violates a, a website's terms of service. It's either leave it up or take it down. And that seems to be the extent of the discussion and the, the extent of the understanding. Uh, now, many of us have spent years trying to make sure that people recognize that there are actually other uh, ways of handling content. And some of those are a lot more creative and often a lot more effective in terms of building a good community and a, and a good website. Uh, and I, even on TechShirt itself, we handle our comment system quite differently than a lot of other sites. Uh, and that includes rewarding good comments and trying to minimize, but not always deleting uh, more trollish comments. Uh, a few years ago, I had talked with some folks about trying to create a taxonomy of possible interventions beyond just leave up and take down, uh, but I really never had the time to dig in. So I was really excited and happy to see that someone else seems to have done all the work for me uh, and that someone is Professor Eric Goldman uh, from Santa Clara University Law School, who has been on the podcast uh, before and has now released an excellent new paper on content moderation remedies, which really dives deep into this question question and explores not just a taxonomy of other possible remedies, but also presents some frameworks for thinking about those different kinds of remedies and how websites might think about implementing them. So Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I know uh, that lots of people have been asking for this kind of thing, as I said, because some people asked me to work on it a while back. Uh, what made you actually uh, go in and do all the work that, that I and some others have, have not been able to do all this time? So I've been thinking about content moderation issues now for a few years, um, starting with a conference that we put together at San Clara University back in February of 2018. And from that conference, um, it became clear that there was a community of people who wanted to keep talking to each other. And from that, we created a new organization, uh, the Trust and Safety Professionals Association, to try and integrate that community, allow them to talk with each other. So as I've been working on building the TSPA and talking with content moderation professionals, uh, some issues just keep popping up over and over again. It's things that stand out. And this was one of them that, as I was looking at the field, I could see that there was all this tension about how we deal with pro problematic content, um, but the literature wasn't discussing it. So many people wanna focus on what are the rules and who makes the rules? And those are sexy, important topics. 
and it's from my conversations with people in the field, it was clear there was another piece that just wasn't getting addressed. And so that's what motivated me to, to write the paper. Clearly, the, there was a, an interest in the community to, to address this issue. And as you pointed out, it wasn't clear that anyone had really filled that gap. Yeah, yeah, no, no one had. Trust me, I, I looked <laughs> back when people had asked me about it, and you know, it it is interesting because you know, I, I think, um, you know, we see all different kinds of creative remedies, but, um, you know, how like, and and we keep seeing new ones. I think, you know, how far back does it go where where sites were sort of trying more creative solutions rather than just straight you know, take down policy violations. Yeah, that was actually uh, one of the many fun aspects of this project. Um, digging into the 1990s literature mm -hmm. on this, there's a really excellent paper from 1996 by a professor who's now the dean of the UCLA Law School, where she wrote about the Lambda Mu community uh -huh. uh, from the early 90s um, that had tried all kinds of interesting um uh, remedies as part of their community management. Um, and so revisiting the issues that they were dealing with over 25 years ago um, and seeing how germane and current they were today uh, really was eye-opening. Um, I, I knew all that back then, but I hadn't thought about it in these terms. So going back with my 2021 vision and thinking about how how far-sighted um, uh, some of the the players were back in the 1990s um it just it really uh, put a smile on my face yeah yeah it, it's it's kind of incredible um and and as you know um and we've talked about on the podcast in the past you know i i've been working on the the content moderation case studies which is for the trust and safety foundation which is the sort of sister organization of the trust and safety professional Organ uh, uh, association that you mentioned um and part of that has been going back and looking at some of these these early ones uh and the early sort of you know challenges in in content moderation and uh, and it is amazing how many of how, how, how many echoes you see <laughs> of of things that are happening today, and you're like, oh yeah, we were dealing with this in 1994 or whatever. <laughs> it's. I feel like it's our obligation, especially. I'm going to put you in the Gen X category. I'm not sure if I'm, <laughs> I'm mislabeling you to educate people from millennials, especially Gen Z. They just have no clue about um, how many of the things they're seeing today. Have uh, have long-standing histories. Yeah, so you know, so, so let let's can we talk about some of the the different remedies because this is this is the part that I think is just really important for people to understand that like everybody jumps to like well if this violates the content you have to take it down but you lay out kind of a taxonomy of of other ideas. Um, do we want to just discuss a few so people sort of, you know sort of recognize what what it is that we're talking about? Absolutely. Uh, what, where do you want to start with? Um, well, let's let's just lay out some stats for the people who haven't had a chance sure. to read the paper yet. Um, so uh, what I did is um, I put together uh, a little over three dozen different remedies. I organized them into five categories. Um, and so one of them is actions against the account. One of them is actions against individual items of content. One of them is uh, downgrading visibility of the account or the content. So um, uh, not uh, uh, so you know making it less visible. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is uh, some form of monetary uh, uh, consequence, and then I had a miscellaneous category, which is uh, actually probably where we'll spend most of our time because those are the most interesting options. 
Um, and so uh, I populated each of those five um, nodes in the taxonomy with things that were actually deployed in the field. Um, right. So these are not things that I made up. These are not things where I'm creative enough to come up with something that no <laughs> one's ever come up with. These are literally just saying, here's examples of things that people have actually done in the field. In some cases, only once, and it's not likely to be replicatable because of the fact that there was something unique about that community that supported that particular remedy. Um, and in other cases, there's many services that have, de have deployed this intermediate remedy as well. Um, so I would put that out there as um, uh, uh, as the big broad picture. Um, I'm going to pick one because I think this one's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, the various different uh, options for shaming uh, people mm -hmm. uh, as a consequence. Um, there's been a, a fair amount of action uh, with respect to that particular option. Um, and it's something that has a really deep literature in criminal justice as well. And so I just think it's an interesting option. What does it mean for an internet company to shame one of their users for having violated their rules? And, and how would you actually do that? Yeah. Um, I mean, do you want to give an example of, of where that's that's been used? Well, um, I'll call out uh, Yelp, for example, which has uh, been putting labels on various businesses and engaging in what Yelp considers to be bad behavior, such as suing reviewers uh, for uh, their postings or um, uh, deploying contracts to try and restrict their postings. So Yelp is basically calling them out, saying, hey, you might think that this business matches your needs on terms of quality and price, but there's another set of aspects about their behavior that might want to still give you pause. Um, and so to me, I think that's a pretty interesting approach to try and call them out. But the yeah. classic one, going back to Lambda Moo, is the toting remedy, um, which is something that people, certainly uh, Gen Z and probably most millennials have never heard of. Um, but the idea was in, um, uh, in Lambda Moo and some other communities back in the old days, to literally turn the player's avatar into a toad um, so that everyone could see that this person had gotten this shaming remedy. Um, it was, you know, on display for all to see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. We, we, it, it reminds me of, uh, I mean, there, there are a bunch of other ones like that that I can think of, but even, you know, our, our comment system, uh, where we, we sort of minimize comments that have been voted trollish. Um, and we actually had a really long debate about um, not just the minimization. It, it basically, you know, just shrinks the comment. You have to click through to see, and it just alerts you that this comment was voted as, as trollish, which already is, to some extent, some level of shaming. Um, but we, we had a debate over what color we should make the comment when it was minimized. Um, and and whether or not the color choice would shame the commenter even more, um, and and we we bounced around and we ended up on gray, but we went through a few different colors and in, in to to just designate like this this comment is, you know, not good, <laughs> but it, it, it's interesting to think through all the different ways that you could you could message that kind of information. Do you, do you think? Uh, and that... I'm sorry, just to jump in on that for a yeah. moment. Um, notice also, that's a great example of something that could be uh, empirical based. You could literally do A-B tests for True. a while to figure out which remedy is most embarrassing uh, right. or 
uh, which remedy leads to less recidivism or more rehabilitation or whatever. These are these are testable empirical questions, not just intuition. Um, and so I think that's part of the the opportunity the paper presents is to get people to think about maybe we should run some tests. Maybe there are ways in which we could slice and dice this particular problem um, with uh, deploying different remedies to get the kind of behavior we want on the site. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's a good point. Um, I mean, do, do you think that like things like Twitter uh, fact checking or or putting the sort of notices onto tweets um, that say like you know experts or fact checkers disagree with this or say this is untrue or or things like that does that fall into the shaming category as well? Uh, I have it as a separate um, item on the list. Uh, in fact, maybe arguably there's more than one item on that. For example, right. I have. So, uh, I have three different bullets, interstitial warning, adding a warning legend, and then counter speech. Um, and so depending on which of those examples you're talking about, those might actually be three different remedies that, that I uh, have on my taxonomy. Um, right. And, and, and in general, I think probably you and definitely I in the past would have thought that's a really powerful remedy. The best problem for bad speech is more speech. Right. And, right. Uh, and, so, and I've become uh, less enamored with that argument over time, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, honestly, because I've, I've been such a firm believer of it. Um, the empirical evidence on this is not good, um, yeah. that it's really hard to educate consumers um, to, uh, uh, to help them uh, better contextualize the information they're consuming, especially if they've already formed a belief. Um, and in some cases, remedies like this actually call greater attention to the problem or lock in or reinforce messages even more deeply. Um, and so they have a risk of being counterproductive. And so I think that those remedies are really interesting. I think uh, this is another great example where A-B testing would be uh, very appropriate to say, what happens if we do this? Do people actually do the things we want afterwards or are we actually compounding and making the problem worse? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I think I, I wonder how easy that is to really a B test because I think a lot of it has to be contextual, right? You know, there are different cases where, you know, adding more speech can can change people around, and I've certainly seen examples of that. And I, I've, but I've also seen the examples where it's counterproductive, and you sort of it just drives people to to believe more strongly in whatever insane belief that they have. And I, it's an issue that I've sort of been thinking through a lot, and sort of been struggling with to, to like how come it works some of the time, and with some of the people, and how come it doesn't, and. And so I actually wonder how really testable that is, because how do you replicate all of the other things that, you know, there's more going on than just, oh, we added this label or, oh, we added this counter speech, right? Because, you know, what the content is, who is saying it, who is listening to it, how widely it spreads, uh, all come into play there. And so I'm, I'm less convinced that that's easily testable. Oh, maybe, but the point is, I'm also not convinced that this is a silver bullet type sure, solution. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and, and, and I think I think yeah. that's a big adjustment, at least for me, to admit that yeah. um, uh, that this isn't the the you know go to fix for problems. Um, let's just give them more speech and let the marketplace decide. Um, right. I'm less convinced that that is a primary resource in many circumstances. Yeah, and and I I think I've gone through that same same thing. I mean, I definitely. Um, 
definitely recognize the limitations on the marketplace of ideas concept. Um, and that's really been driven home a lot, certainly in the last few years. Um, and, and I sort of struggled with it also. I'm not, I'm not, I know some people have given up on it entirely and I'm not ready to give up on it entirely. And that's why I've been thinking about it and sort of trying to understand like where and how does it work and when does it work and what are the scenarios under which it, it does have an impact? Because I, you know, I, I don't want to throw out the, you know, the proverbial baby with the bathwater and say like, Oh, you know, focusing on the marketplace of ideas and, and more speech and counter speech is, you know, entirely unproductive or in some cases counterproductive. Uh, so I, I've been trying to figure out where and how uh, it does work and where and how it doesn't. Um, and that's still, I, I don't have any answers there and I'm not sure anyone does. Um, but, you know. The good news is that people are researching this. And so maybe we will get uh, some answers. I will note that this issue has come up extensively in the intellectual property literature, especially with things yeah. like what do you do when someone infringes a trademark um, or someone engages in false advertising? Um, so those kinds of questions are actually things that have been uh, pretty well studied over the years. Um, but I think I'm not sure if I'm ready to hear it. And maybe you aren't either to say, you know what, actually things like corrective advertising for false advertising really probably doesn't work. Um, or a disclaimer saying that this trademark uh, is not affiliated with a different trademark probably doesn't work. Um, right. These are things that we're, we're reluctant to admit, but um, but the evidence on those is, is not so great. Yeah. Yeah. No, that. Uh, yeah. Um. I mean, it's an, it's an interesting area to explore. And I do wonder also, like, um, I mean, to some extent, and this is always the issue with content moderation, is like there has to be a recognition that, like, this stuff is not going to solve all problems. It's never designed to solve all problems. And at, you know, at the end of the day, there is an issue of, like, the human beings who are, um, you know, on the receiving end of this stuff and, and what they do with, with this information and how they process it and how much responsibility they have also, um, not to say like, you know, Oh, it's all on, it's all on the end user. Um, but you know, I, I, I get worried when there's so much focus on the, um, you know, the content itself is to blame kind of perspective rather than recognizing that there are lots of players, um, both the speakers and the listeners as well. Well, and also the, uh, the, the service that's gathering, uh, mm -hmm. organizing and presenting the information, there's a lot they can do with their context to reinforce or undercut the messages of the content they're presenting. And I, I think those are all uh, areas I think the services are actively experimenting with today. They're trying a lot of different things. And in the end, I'm really excited about that because I, yeah. I think to your earliest point, uh, the introducing this, I don't think I don't think we're at the end state of this uh, uh, of this experiment. I think there's a lot more that we can do to figure out what does work, what doesn't work, uh, what context in which it works or not. That we're we're getting fresh information about um, uh, right now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's part of the reason why it's frustrating to see a lot of the the legislative proposals that that seem very much you know, uh, of the belief that, <laughs> that what we have will always stay and therefore we need to regulate it and sort of keep it in place. And we are going to regulate this particular solution, um, sort of cutting off the possibility of more creative solutions, I think. That's certainly one of the goals I had with the paper was uh, to educate regulators about the fact that uh, they're part of the problem here. Um, they're so uh, 
um, uh, convinced that there's only binary options, uh, that they hard code that into their regulatory efforts. And they're taking away our ability to experiment with different options uh, to see when counter speech might work or might not work, uh, uh, when warning legends or uh, uh, other legends might be helpful. Um, and uh, and by taking away the power to do those experiments, I think that we're depriving ourselves of, of um, some society-wide lessons that might be actually really important. Yeah. What, um, as you were going through and creating these examples, what, um, which ones were, were most surprising to you? Which ones, you know, had you maybe not known about before you started researching it, if any? Well, remember, I didn't. It didn't really work that way. Um, I just started collecting uh, mm -hmm. examples as I saw them, um, okay. and so I just kept on expanding my my taxonomy as I said, "Oh, I think this is another example." And then, of course, people were doing them in different ways. So, part of the job for me was to figure out, "Okay, I'll take this example, but where do I classify them in the taxonomy?" We already had some of that difficulty. You consider uh, something to, uh, like a counter speech to be a shaming thing. Well, yeah, it's shaming, but that's not really the same thing. So, right. um, so for me, it was really just trying to um, uh, trying to uh, uh, capture things in the field rather than going and actively looking and saying, "Hey, has someone uh, done this?" But I'd forgotten about things like toting. So that was part of the fun is to go yeah. back and uh, see some stuff that people were trying way back when and saying, "Oh, wow, they really uh, were dealing with the same issues back then." I think the thing that surprised me the most really is just how many different options I was able to come up with without being creative on my own, which I don't think would have added much. But, you know, I'm not trying to think of some fantasy ideas of things that could be done, right, literally right. capturing what people have done and being able to see so many different options, I think, um, surprised me. Uh, I, I would not have guessed there were that many. I would have thought maybe, yeah, maybe there's there's a half dozen, maybe there's a dozen. But mm -hmm. to find three different dozen options, um, uh, I think was actually in some ways really inspiring. It shows just how much opportunity there is for innovation in our space. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And and again, like, you know, different ones are seem to be appearing all the time, um, which is exciting to me. And I hope that, that we're allowed to sort of see how those different experiments play out. Um, you, you note in the, um, uh, in the paper that, that the, this idea of you know, takedown being the only remedy. There, there's sort of this, you know, ubiquitous idea of takedown, leave up as, as the only options. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's, that's the way things have gone and that most people seem to believe those are the only two options? Uh, yeah, and I did talk about that uh, a little bit in the paper, tried to come up with some hypotheses about why uh, we got hard-coded into this binary option set. Um, and... I can speculate. I can only speculate. I didn't come up with any con, uh, uh, answers, uh, any definitive answers. Um, but one obvious reason is just it's an efficient way of thinking. Um, you know, uh, to be able to say, you know, yes or no, um, white or black, that kind of binary type of thing really speeds up conversations. Um, so I think that helped a lot. Um, I think that uh, the fact that um, some of the uh, hard coding of uh, removal as the remedy uh, went back into the uh, 90s. And so um, it's been around for a long time. Things like the DMCA's online uh, safe harbor requires removal as the way of avoiding liability for third-party copyright infringement. 
Um, and that's from 1998. So we know that you know at the relatively early stages of regulatory development, um, we were seeing hard coding of uh, the binary option then. Um, and the other thing I point out is that uh, uh, that um, binary the the remedy the the removal remedy is one of the few remedies that we know is going to be available to everybody uh, in mm -hmm. this space. Whereas when you get to some of these other niche options, it's not quite as clear if that will work in all the different contexts. So the fact that it it um, uh, can apply universally and other remedies can't, um, I think also gives it some advantages. Um, but yeah, that may be a question that's lost to history. How exactly did we get here? Um, I only have some guesses. Yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me is that, you know, I mean, if you're sort of just approaching this for the first time, that's the obvious one, right? Okay, this violates the policy, take it down or violates the law in some cases, take it down. Um, so I assume that's just sort of the natural reaction to things. But I do wonder also if, if, if it will remain the kind of thing that does apply across the board, you know, as we're starting to see whether or not any of them are ever successful, we're start, starting to see, you know, distributed web services uh, and, you know, blockchain related things uh, in which, you know, people, refer to them inaccurately as censor proof. Um, and so I do wonder, you know, what will happen with some of those as, as some of some of content sort of migrates over to those kinds of services um, and how, you know, both how, how different parties are going to react to that and, and handle that situation. And, and I'm not sure. I, I love that question, but let, let's just uh, contextualize it slightly differently. There might be no greater, uh, no time when there's a greater dichotomy between what the regulators are thinking and what the technologists are able to do. <laughs> um, so we're seeing a really uh, important uh, split um, there. And then the, I think really the question becomes, who wins that battle? And over the last 25 years, it's become clear the regulators are going to win that battle. Um, and if it isn't that whoever does this decentralized uh, 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 content distribution, if they're not the ones do it, you go upstream to someone else. You say, turn right. it off. Um, and you keep going upstream until you find someone who can turn it off and then you make them do it. So I think the regulators are likely to win that battle. And actually that highlights the danger of the binary remedy because we know if they keep going upstream to someone who's got greater oversight over the issue, uh, the higher up we go in that chain, the more collateral damage that's likely to come right. from a, a termination remedy. Yeah, well, I mean, that is that is sort of, you know, th this is a whole other area of discussion, but but one that I've been thinking about a lot, and we're, we're going to have a whole series of stuff on this very soon, um, that the yeah. content moderation questions that are more at the infrastructure level, one of the issues is that they they have many fewer remedies um, and and their remedies are, are generally not just turn it off, but turn off an entire service or an entire section of a service. Um, and that has just, as you said, tremendous collateral damage. It's, it's very much the sledgehammer approach and it's one that concerns me um, more than, than the, the questions for the sort of edge providers or websites, whatever you want to call them. Um, yeah, and I do talk about that in the paper. Um, I, I have two sections where I discuss the taxonomy in how to operationalize it. And one section is, here's a bunch of levers or sliders that you can uh, play with that represent different normative values, some of which might be intention. And then right. I lay in some of my own normative values. And the, the first one actually is, 
if a site uh, if a service has limited remedies they're probably not the right locus for regulatory intervention the smaller the number of remedies the less appropriate it is for regulators to tell them what to do because then they can't uh, deploy more nuance that would uh, lead to right. a better balancing of interests yeah, yeah. Well, and, and then there, you have a part in the paper about prioritizing the different kinds of remedies. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah. So the natural question that after I get this uh, taxonomy of remedies um, that I've gotten is, okay, so which one's the best? Uh, which one's right. the right one? And, uh, you know, this is just this uh, innate quest to come up with uh, a hierarchy of remedies. You know, these are the good ones. These are so-so ones. These are ones that don't work. Um, and uh, and so really, I wrote a section of the paper to say there aren't any right ones, or as a law professor would say, it depends. Um, <laughs> but then explain why it depends, and here are the factors that it depends on, and that allows us to engage in this kind of slider discussion. Okay, so if that's the value you want, do you do know you're going to be giving up these other values? I'll give you an example. I am going to be talking with uh, internet companies about this research so that they'll consider if it's helpful to them. And I had one of those conversations and the, we kept coming back to the question about and how will this affect our scalability? Um, you know, how, how can we make sure that we can operate this across a large data set? Um, which the answer is, okay, so you're prioritizing scalability. So here's a bunch of the other values that you've already implicitly chosen to give up. And it's not, I'm not going to say that scalability is right or wrong. I'm simply going to point out that those are in tension with other values. So, mm. um, so basically, that's what I tried to do is collect some of the values that, um, uh, that we could prioritize. And then I think that we're going to see regulators will prioritize them differently. And I think internet companies will prioritize them differently, even amongst each other. Um, and to me, that's all good. And so the answer isn't a cheat when I say there is no single uh, uh, right optimal deployment of, uh, of remedies. Uh, the answer is really, let's allow lots of different remedies to flourish. And then we'll see how that all plays out, which ones actually end up uh, solving the problem in the particular community where it's being deployed. Yeah. There's, there's another concept that, that you talk about in the paper as well about sort of that I think is really important and that, that often gets lost in the, in the discussion and debate around these issues, which is that the remedy yeah. should be sort of proportionate to whatever the um, crime or harm or policy violation, however you want to describe it is. Um, and, and I think that's really important because like, you know, uh, taking down content or, or, you know, shutting down entire accounts is, you know, it's a, it's a pretty strong remedy. And there are always questions of whether or not that is proportionate to whatever the, the damage was done or the, you know, again, harm policy violation, whatever it is. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that, about sort of, you know, playing with these sliders to try and make sure that the, the remedies are proportional? Well, so uh, that's a value that you subscribe to and I subscribe to, but I don't think we need to uh, um, assume that everyone subscribes mm -hmm. to that. Uh, it's quite possible that people are like, look, if it's illegal, it needs to come down. And I, there's right. nothing more to talk about. Um, you know, that's, that is the only uh, level of proportionality. Tell me if it's legal or not, then we know um, uh, how to deal with it. Um, but proportionality as a as a remedy as a principle for um, uh, dealing with uh, the uh, the consequences of violations, it's got a long standing history, especially in international human rights. 
Um, so certainly that didn't come with me. It start with me. That's something that uh, I just co-opted um, other discussion um, to reference. Um, and I think that uh, that for for regulators, it's actually really an interesting option because if you were to put the question to them in a criminal justice context, they would say, of course, we're going to want proportionality. We don't employ the death penalty for every uh, crime uh, all the way from murder to shoplifting. Um, we pick we pick which which remedy is appropriate uh, proportionally to the, the harm that's done. Um, and so I think they get it. I think when people, when, when you explain it to regulators that, of course, we're going to want a proportional outcome, they would get that. They have analogies to do that. But I don't think that's their instinct. I think that's something that they need to be trained about. So that I, is another aspect I'm hoping will be helpful for the regulators to see that. It's to get and think, oh, well, of course, we're going to want proportional remedies. That makes sense. Um, but, uh, but I don't know that that's where they would have started. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you ha you haven't heard it yet because it hasn't been released. But people listening to this, hopefully, if you listen to the podcast, you will you will hear the podcast that goes up before this one, uh, which is with uh, Professor Jamal Green uh, from Columbia Law School about his new book. Um, which part of it is arguing about how um, how how courts are are often get so focused on on rights and preserving rights that they don't necessarily come up with proportionate uh, remedies for, you know, for, for, you know, within the courts. Um, and he's arguing that we need to, to rethink that. And it was funny because in that conversation, we kept going back to similarities between what he's arguing about the courts and then what's happening in the content moderation space as well. And now we're talking about the content moderation space and I'm thinking about like taking that back to the courts. So it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, and, and, you know, certainly we're not the first to note that there are parallels between, you know, the judicial system and the content moderation system. Um, and so, but it is interesting to see the different ideas flowing back and forth across them. Yeah, and I'll give an example about that, uh, which you may have talked about with Professor Green. Uh, the uh, example of the sentencing guidelines are used in federal mm -hmm. uh, criminal cases. Um, this was the idea to try to come up with um, uh, equivalent consequences for equivalent violations. Um, and I don't know that the sentencing guidelines are a complete success, but they're probably better than the alternative, which was anarchy. Um, <laughs> and so... But so we literally have it hard coded into the uh, criminal sentencing process a, a point system designed to lead to proportional outcomes for the violation uh, associated with it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's it's going off on a big tangent, but there are also yeah. problems with that system. But absolutely, and yeah. I'm I'm not offering up as a model. I'm simply trying right. to point yeah. out there was an effort to try and achieve that outcome and to systematize it to make sure that it actually uh, worked. Right. 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 Um, and, and so in, in determining remedies, do you think that, and this is like, this is a much bigger discussion also, but like, is it the, do, do you think that the internet companies, the websites, the people who control the websites are the best place to decide, uh, what remedies make the most sense? I do. And let me expose my biases about that. Um, the internet companies understand their audience in a way that nobody else will. And even companies that are nominally competitors with each other might still very uh, have very different views about how best to serve their audience. 
And that can include things like how they deal with violations of their rules. So um, I'm, a, I'm really uh, enthusiastic about the importance of letting internet services cater to their audiences that only they understand and that, that people outside that community don't understand. Um, so yes, I, I would love to push that decision-making as far down uh, to the individual services as possible uh, to give them that freedom because of the, the unique natures of their communities. Yeah, and, and I think I agree with that just because generally speaking, they're the ones who are going to understand their communities the best and also what they respond to and what works and in what contexts. Um, but I, I'm just playing devil's advocate because I know uh, I can hear people screaming this, you know, they're going to argue that, you know, the companies, their own interests um, may lie in places that, that society doesn't want, right? For, you know, the, the, the classic, which I think is wrong, and I'll be clear that I think is wrong, is this idea that like, oh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and whoever, um, they want more engagement and therefore they allow for all of these violations that, you know, you know, push disinformation that gets people angry because it leads to more engagement. I think that's not true. Um, and so, but, but there is a concern that if you just leave it to the companies, they're going to, um, you know, put in place remedies that, you know, benefit their bottom line is the, the simplest way of looking at it. And, and you know, how do you respond to that argument? It's a fair argument, um, and it's like econ 101. <laughs> <laughs> you know, companies are going to maximize their self-interest, uh, and that includes um, how they deal with uh, rule violations. Um, so, so yes. Now, what's the alternative? And right. is the alternative better? Uh, and so what are regulators going to maximize? Well, they're going to maximize <laughs> their control and their power. Um, maybe if they're doing that, um, they're actually going to uh, create worse off outcomes. And uh, and in particular, I think these one size fits all solutions um, have the potential to really uh, limit the ability of uh, the internet to reach, reach its full potential. Um, and so even if each company is doing these kinds of self-maximization uh, efforts, um, uh, I still think that might just be the standard invisible hand approach, um, yeah. which is let a thousand entities bloom, let them all compete with each other, and then let's see what kind of um, results we get from that. Yeah, um, there are certainly minimum areas where we would require um, intervention, and you know, the classic go-to example is always uh, uh, you know what we used to call child pornography. Now we call CSAM. Um, and we're not going to let internet companies have the freedom to decide uh, what to do about that content. We're right. going to tell them they have to take it down, and we're probably going to require them to do even more than that, like pick up the phone and call the FBI to let them know uh, that there's been a problem. Um, right. Right. So I know that there will be a layer of activity that we are going to take away the freedom of internet companies to decide what to do, um, but I'm hoping that we're judicious about uh, that layer uh, keeping it as narrow as possible so that we do preserve the freedom uh, for everyone else. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing I would add to that too is, you know, I think a lot of the idea that it has to be the regulators who make these decisions um, misses out on, on the fact that there are a number of different competing uh, forces and interests in terms of that determine what the companies do. And um, thinking of it as just like, oh, you know, the bottom line says more, you know, more engagement is better for the bottom line misses on the fact that like, you know, if 
your website is a giant dumpster fire of garbage and disinformation and harassment and abuse and spam, you're going to drive away many users and also many advertisers, and it might actually be worse for your bottom line. So there, there are a number of different competing interests so that, you know, the, the flexibility that the companies have to to figure out what the right remedies are often do include, you know, not just maximizing the garbage because they, they recognize that that's actually not good for their bottom line. And, well, and so, yeah. yeah, and I agree with all that. I'm going to add actually, and we're thinking about it as the worst case scenario, but notice also we could say this might be a way for internet companies to deal with the legal but marginal content right. and maybe give them some ways of thinking about how they might actually uh, uh, take action against those without removing that, the content because it's legal and it's, uh, it, may, it, it may have an audience. Um, so it can work in both directions, both how, how can we make sure that uh, the internet companies are taking seriously the legal violations, but also um, can we give them more options to deal with uh, the content that might be uh, a pernicious in part? Right, yeah. Well, it, it, the the paper is is great. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, it's something that I had, had been, thought about writing many years ago and and never did. And and it's something that needs to be in the world. So I'm glad that that you created it. And uh, we'll have a link in in the show notes. But it's just content moderation uh, remedies by Eric Goldman. You can do a search and find it on SSRN. Um, but uh, thanks thanks for for writing it <laughs> and actually putting in all the work. Um, it's going to be really, really helpful, I think, to a lot of people, including myself. Well, I, I sure do hope it helps. Um, and uh, this was a project that took about two years to do. So um, I felt like it needed that time to get the results I wanted. So, um, so I'm hoping that uh, me doing all that uh, work and bearing all that pain for the community ends up benefiting others. But mostly I'm just grateful for you uh, having a chance to uh, engage with me on it uh, here in this uh, conversation. Cool. Great. Well, uh, thanks again for, for taking the time. And um, thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. Thank you. Thanks.